Well, can I say it's a, a great pleasure to be here uh, and uh, to be inside a building rather than outside on such an, an evening and uh, to be looking at some pretty tempestuous stories that fit the weather, um, the stories that God has told us in the book of Judges. And if you have that uh, booklet, that sh those uh, outlines, you'll have some idea of where we're going. Now, uh, the book of Judges can seem like, uh, well, stories from another planet. Um, they're so far from our times and our circumstances. Uh, but, you know, we ought to come expectantly when we come to the book of Judges or indeed every part of the Bible because we have promises. Romans 15.4 says everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It was written not to teach them, it happened to them, but it's written to teach us. Now, if that's true and we believe it's true, we know it's true, we ought to come expectantly as we come to these apparently strange stories. And secondly, we ought to come humbly. When you read the, the, the accounts of the days of the judges, it's easy to kind of feel, well, you know, what a shower they are, or at least some of the time, especially when you get into the later chapters. Um, it was a period uh, after the conquest when Israel were in the promised land, but the conquest had faltered. They failed to obey God. They'd been told by God, we'll come back to this, to destroy the Canaanites. And instead, you can see what happened in chapter 3, verse 5. The Israelites, who'd been told by God to destroy uh, the Canaanites, not to intermarry with them, and to break down and destroy all their idols, we read the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and Jebusites, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And in every respect in those verses, they turned upside down what God had commanded them and did the opposite. And as a result, the spiritual tide in Israel, if you like, was going out. Israel was capitulating to the apparently seductive values of the world around. Now, it seems to me that that isn't so many thousands of miles away from where we are in our society, uh, that we are in days of spiritual decline. Now, I know it differs from place to place, and when I come to Northern Ireland, I, I, I always think how many Christians there are, and how many churches, and how strong you are in many ways. But the truth is, in our society in general, uh, the tide is going out, and we've got not a great deal of reason to feel so superior to the Israelites of those days. So we should come humbly. We should also come reverently, because ultimately the book of Judges is not about the judges. Well, you say that's strange because that's what it's called. Uh, and when you read the stories, there's an awful lot to do with judges. But of course, actually, we're not told the stories so we learn about the judges who lived an awful long time ago and haven't been around for thousands of years. Uh, we are told those stories so we learn about their God. So we need to come reverently because this is about their God and our God. And there's some very good news here. 
Judges doesn't always read like good news, but there is good news. Uh, I chose a title, which I really should have put on that outlines sheet at the very top, but it doesn't appear. But the title I chose was this for the whole series, The Sufficiency of God for Inadequate People. The Sufficiency of God for Inadequate People. Because, you see, God persevered with unworthy Israel, and he stooped to use some very unexpected people. And that's very good news for us. God is adequate for the inadequate. God is sufficient for the insufficient. And that's very good news for us, because actually we're rather like ancient Israelites. So I hope we'll come expectantly, humbly, and reverently and specifically this evening to the story of Ehud, which I've called the God of the Despised. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, will you notice that in verse 12, we read of God responding to the Israelites, and if you look down to verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Both verse 12 and verse 15 tell us that again, the Israelites did something and the Lord responded to what they did. In the first case, you could say negatively and in the second case, positively. God is not just a remote observer. God is actually engaged if you're a Christian, God's engaged in your life. Uh, you may not realize how much he's engaged. You may not always see how much he's engaged. But he is not just an observer of you. He is engaged in your life. Firstly, the Lord sees. You see, verse 12, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When I was a small boy, um, I went to a school and very early on, I was very struck by a photograph halfway down the main school corridor. It was a photograph of Winston Churchill. And it seemed to me that his eyes followed me all the way along the corridor. Uh, I had this kind of sense that the great man was always looking. Now, it was just a photograph. And it just happened to be so photographed that it did look as though his eyes followed you. But he wasn't actually seeing anything. It was a photograph. But you know, somebody is watching you as you walk down every corridor. There is a God in heaven who sees. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews uh, chapter 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that's both reassuring, because it means that God never takes his eyes off you. He knows everything about you. And he knows everything you need. But it's also alarming because God also knows all the things that you rather wish nobody knew about you. He doesn't just know all you need. He also knows all our sins. And that was the Israelites' problem. Again, the Israelites did evil in his eyes. Now, whether they thought it was evil isn't the point. They presumably didn't think it was evil but it was evil because he was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's true in any society. We may think that what we're doing is fine. That isn't what's really relevant. What's relevant is what God thinks. It is his, ver it is his verdict 
not mine, that tells you the truth. And here, they did evil. That word evil comes twice in verse 12. They did evil. They did this evil. What evil? Well, idolatry. Look in verse 9. There's a reference, 19 rather, there's a reference to the idols near Gilgal. Look in verse 26. He passed by the idols, the stone images. And you could read those verses and just pass by them and not think about it. This is Israel. And the idols in Gilgal are a landmark sufficient to be mentioned as a place that everybody would have known. The idols at Gilgal. This is an Israel given over to idolatry. You see the sort of thing that happened up in verse 7 on a previous occasion, but the same thing kept happening. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Uh, they were idolatrous. And look at it in verse 12. Once again, once again, uh, sin is boringly repetitive. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, sin isn't a one-off visitor. Uh, sin keeps coming back. Uh, you see, so here in verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, uh, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 6. Um, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The, the, you know, the records got stuck. Um, but that's how it was. They, there's this awful refrain. And that's what, that's what sin's like. Sin isn't just a one-off event. Sin gets a grip. Sin comes again and again. It's like some terrible disease which you never quite get rid of. And that's not just true in ancient Israel. That's true of us all. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need to run to God because we cannot deal with sin, can we? We cannot deal with sin. We cannot cope with sin. We cannot master sin. You can pass exams and pass driving tests and get jobs and get married, but you can't deal with sin. You may be a great success in this sphere or that sphere, but you can't deal with sin. At the end of the, your life, you may have a long list of achievements, but I'll tell you this, you will not have dealt with sin. Only God deals with sin. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, so don't go pretending. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. We need him. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. The Lord sees, and he sees our sins. And as a result here, the Lord gave, he, 
he gave them over to Eglon. That's the way it's phrased in my translation. The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. As verse 13 explains, uh, Eglon uh, got his mates, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, to join in the fun. And the Israelites are invaded by multiple invaders. They're driven up into the hills. Their lands are devastated. Their towns are burnt. Verse 13, Eglon took possession of the city of the Palms, uh, where he had a summer palace, verse 20, and grew very fat indeed, verse 17, off the plenty of Israel. The uh, city of the Palms. Do you know what city that is? That's it's Jericho. Just think about that. Jericho. What was the first city the Israelites captured when they entered the land? It was Jericho. What was the great epitome, as it were, of the Lord with Israel? It was Jericho. And now this same city is where Eglon sits in his palace, gloating over a conquered country. So the city that was the sign of God's power for Israel became the sign of God's judgment of Israel. And this condition goes on and on. Verse 14, 18 years. There's a, there's a whole generation that grows up that can't remember anything but Moabite rule. And at times in Judges, we may ask, where has God gone? Because it doesn't look as though God's up doing his stuff, does it? Or at least that's how you might think. And even we may look at the state of things in our country or in our church or in our circumstances and sometimes deduce that God, well, you know, why is it like this? If God is so great, why are things so bad? Well, look at verse 12 because it tells us why. They, because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. You just look over to chapter 4, verse 2, which we'll come to tomorrow. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Chapter 6, verse 1, again the Israelites did evil, uh, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Did you see what's happening? The thing that seems to be out of control is actually God in control. It's God judging Israel. It's God providing, uh, putting them into the hands of their enemies. The power of rampant Moabites was an act of the God of Israel, a display not of his weakness, but of his power uh, and his sovereignty. And that's scary thought. But it's an important thought. Next time you see a church building, which is now a, a supermarket or an art gallery or something, what are you looking at? You may be looking at an act of God. Because it's very possible that the people in that building turned their back on the living God and the God of the Bible. They lost the gospel and they lost the truth and they lost the church. And God does that. You see, it is an act of God here, the power of the Moabites. And if we look at a, at a kind of on the bigger scale, um, you know, is it possible that militant Islam and the evil of IS is, is, is perhaps an agency of God's judgment on the West, which has turned its back on God? 
and justifies sexual immorality of all sorts and slaughters unborn children in the name of convenience and worships money and lives for pleasure and ignores God and is full of pride and self-sufficiency, isn't it just possible that God hands power over to wicked men? See, God's power can be demonstrated in unexpected ways. The Lord saw and he judged. But th there's a kind of parallel in verse 18, verse 15, again, but it's a different again. The Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. You see, the only answer to the again of sin in verse 12 is the again of prayer in verse 15. You pray again. Uh, you know, what, what do I need to do? I, you need to pray again. Um, see, that's God's weapon that he's put in your hands, that you can pray again. And you messed up, yes, but you can pray again. And there is a God who hears the prayer again. Uh, and he has every reason to turn away from you. And yet the Bible teaches us again and again that he responds again and again. So don't run from God. But to God, the Lord who saw in verse 12 is the Lord who hears in verse 15. And he hears you always. And the Lord who heard responded just as the Lord who saw responded. The Lord who heard responded and he gave them a savior. Verse 15, a deliverer. And that is the story. That's the ruling fact of the passage. And that's actually typical of God. What is the whole Bible about but about God giving us a savior? Mankind blew up God's creation in, in Genesis 3. So what's the rest of the Bible there for? To tell us how God's put it back together again finally. How God is at work to bring a savior. And isn't that wonderful? You see, God is not a hard-hearted um, ogre he is a generous hearted father and he's given us a savior so when we look at Ehud the savior he's a kind of very small model of a much greater savior and we have a savior who is able to deliver us as Ehud did so the God who responds secondly the God who acts now God's salvation's never theory God's salvation's worked out in real life for real people in this messed up world, and there are some tremendous encouragements. How does he act? He acts through human weakness. You see, no one but God would have chosen Ehud. If you'd advertised the job of deliverer, Ehud would not have applied, and if he had applied, you would not have shortlisted him. Uh, why not? Well, he was just very, he was just, there are so many things wrong with him. Firstly, he's left-handed, verse 15. Now, maybe somebody here is left-handed, and you're thinking, what's wrong with that? Well, the Hebrew actually says he's bound or impeded, literally shut up on the right side. And it is very like, it could just mean he's left-handed in the sense that we might mean it. But almost, it's very, very likely, and most of the heavyweight commentators eventually decide this is probably the case he was in some way paralyzed or damaged in his right hand which makes quite a lot of sense of what happens you see the point about Ehud was that he was obviously not a danger okay here's a guy whose right hand is shriveled or doesn't work or 
however you imagine it. When you saw Ehud, you didn't think, wow, he's a man to avoid in a dark night. No, he's the sort of guy you can handle because one hand doesn't work. So when he hides a sword under his clothing, it even goes on the wrong side. You know, where do you expect a sword to be? Well, a sword's meant to be here, isn't it? You, you draw it out, except, well, this guy doesn't have a hand that could draw it out. So when he hides his sword, he puts it somewhere unexpected and unsuspected. He's left-handed. And he's also, he's the bringer of tribute. You see that in verse 15? Um, the Israelites sent him, that's Ehud, with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, reference to the tribute comes three times in close succession. He had a little gang of men with him, men who he sends on their way in verse 18. <coughs> I guess there was probably quite a lot of tribute. And uh, anyway, he only had one hand to carry it, so he needed help. Uh, and uh, what is his job like? Well, it's not a job anybody would have wanted. He is the very epitome of Israel's humiliation. And he was probably chosen because he, you know, he wasn't very impressive and, and kind of somehow, well, they had to find somebody to do an unpleasant job. So they chose somebody who was fairly obviously damaged. And he comes as the bringer of tribute. And this bringing of tribute was one imagines. It was not explained exactly, but I suspect it was a bit of a uh, ceremony. You know, Eglon's sitting on his throne, and there are probably Moabite soldiers around, and the Israelites are meant to come and bow low and do homage uh, and place all the goodies on the ground before the Moabites. And it, he is the epitome of the despicable Israelite. And yet... The bringer of tribute, that role gives Ehud one priceless advantage in this whole story, without which he wouldn't appear in the story. He had access to the king of Moab. You see, Eglon didn't do royal walkabouts. He didn't open hospitals. He didn't throw garden parties. The average Israelite wouldn't have got anywhere near Eglon. But if Ehud turns up at the royal palace... Well, he's the guy who's the official representative of Israel. He's the guy who's meant to turn up. He's the guy the guards at the, at the gate get to recognize. They know that face. So actually, they don't think twice when they let Ehud in. After all, he's so obviously disadvantaged, isn't he? And the point is this, that both these facts about Ehud, that his right hand didn't work and that he brought tribute, they're not incidental. They're positively the means that God used to make Ehud useful. Now, can you just see there may be a principle, there is a principle there, that the things you struggle about, what's your, what's your disadvantage? Think about that. What's your disadvantage? Maybe you don't think you've got any disadvantages. Okay, you're sitting there with a big smile on your face. Uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't something that you wish wasn't like it was in your life. The disadvantages. Uh, there are, are times in life where our disadvantages will seem to far outweigh our advantages. Our struggles, our pains, our failures. 
the things that we think put us at a disadvantage in God's hands can be the very means that God opens doors for us to be useful. I mean, just imagine, how do you empathize with other people if you've never had anything tough that's happened in your life? It may be you're going through something pretty tough at the moment. That may be exactly what God intends so that one day you will actually have a heart for people going through hard things. And the Bible has got all sorts of examples of disadvantage turning out to be advantage. Do you remember Paul? Of course you remember Paul, that dynamo of a man who longs to take the gospel anywhere in the world where it hasn't yet been heard. And the Romans lock him up. And they put him in prison for years. See, it's this dynamo of a guy, and he is locked up and he languishes in prison. Uh, and you know what he wrote to the Philippians from prison in Rome? He said, uh, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, that is a result of being a prisoner in chains. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word more courageously and fearlessly. You know, Paul had prayed for the advance of the gospel at the heart of the Roman Empire, which was Rome itself. And God took him to the heart of the Roman Empire. God took him to Caesar's household. He took him to the palace. Well, the dungeons. And in the dungeons, he was chained for hours at a time to a captive audience of Roman soldiers, one after the other. And every one in their two hours or four hours or ten hours, whatever it was, with the Apostle Paul, you can bet they heard the gospel. And the gospel began to run riot in the palace guard of the center of the Roman Empire. And you see... Paul's boldness then gave the boldness to other Christians. The end of the letter, he talks about the saints in Caesar's household. You see, God can plant believers in the most unexpected places, and he used Paul being in prison to do that. I imagine you've heard of Johnny Erickson. You heard of Johnny Erickson? Okay, amazing lady. She's been used extraordinarily by God. Not despite being quadriplegic but precisely because she's quadriplegic because she broke her neck as a teenager in God's providence that horrible disaster has been the door of immense fruitfulness and when she talks about suffering you can't argue that away and she talks about the goodness of God. You can't laugh at that. There is a power, not despite her disadvantage, but because of her disadvantage. So I just want to plant that thought in your heart. And it may not be that it's desperately close to your life at the moment, but there may come a day when that is what you need to remember that God can use disadvantages. So God worked through human weakness. Secondly here, he worked through human initiatives. God delivering and men acting and women acting are not two separate categories. You will all come, have come from situations 
where you know God is with you. If you're a Christian, you know God is with you. And God is with you to work, his work. But you know that doesn't mean you're just there to sit around and sit in armchairs and eat ice cream and hope that God does it. No, actually, God normally uses people when he acts. He doesn't have to, but he generally chooses to. So we read in the Bible of Peter, and we read of Paul, and we read of the disciples, and we see Jesus using, God using people through church history. We can think of people after name after name, Luther and Calvin, Whitfield and Wesley, William Carey and Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. Now, God did it all, but actually God used them too. And here, God did it all, but he used Ehud. And in your situation, God's the one who'll do it all, but he can use you. And here, in this situation, it began in Ehud's heart. You see, in verse 15, it says that God gave them a deliverer. <coughs> and verse 16 says Ehud had made a double-edged sword. Now, what's going on? Well, something was going on in his heart that caused him to make the sword. God had given a deliverer, and the deliverer makes a sword. Why does he make a sword? Because of the distress of God's people distressed him. Because the enemies of God's people grieved him. Because somehow, before he ever did something, he began to care about what God cared about. I wonder if what you care about is what God cares about. Because that's the beginning of Christian usefulness. It isn't going out and doing things. It's beginning to care about what God cares about. It's beginning to be burdened for what God's burdened by. See, that, that's where it began with Ehud. With godly longing before godly action. Sort your heart out. That's where it begins. So let's have a look at what happened. We're going to look at what, when, how, and what happened then. What? Verse 16. He made a sword. He concealed on his right thigh, which, as I said, would not have been where a sword would normally be carried. And he is clearly preparing ahead to act. Now, the what in our case, I'm pretty confident will look differently. You won't go away and make a sword, I think. Um, but there always will be a what. If you have a heart that in some way beats with God's heart, in tune with God's heart, there will be a what. There will be a consequence. There will be something you need to prepare. It may be preparing yourself. It may be giving yourself to prayer. It may be uh, getting a book that you can give to a friend or whatever it is, but there will be a what, an action you take to prepare for usefulness. And maybe you need to pray that God will help you to see what that what should be for you this week. And then there's a when. Verse 17, Ehud and company turn up to present the tribute. Now, as I said, I am, we imagine, one imagines this was a bit of a ceremony. It was not a good time to try to dispatch uh, Eglon. Uh, there were guards, there were attendants, there were people looking on. So what happens, you, you see what happens, Verse 18, after Ehud had presented this tribute, he sent on the way the men who'd carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back 
and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So he delivers the tribute, and he and his mates disappear. They head back towards Gilgal. Um, he sends his helpers on, but at Gilgal, he goes back. Now, the timing is actually really important. Um, it's very deliberate. He's thought about this. He returns to Jericho. It's about six miles away from Gilgal, and he arrives unexpected. But they knew his face. Yeah, but he'd just been there a few hours ago. They knew. It wasn't a surprise. They didn't say, who are you, mate? They looked at Ehud and said, oh, that's that chap. And he's back again. What do you want? I've got a secret message for the king. Well, you know, he was there just a few hours ago. They were inclined to let him in. They obviously did let him in. He doesn't look dangerous. And the timing is key. You see, Ehud walks back in the palace and he knows the Moabites are not on high alert. The guards who probably turned out for the ceremony have gone back to their ordinary duties. The when is actually really very important. And there'll be a when for you very often too. You're going to plan an event. You're going to visit somebody. You're going to start a conversation. There will be a when. And you need to pray for the wisdom to know when to do whatever it is you're going to do for the Lord. When? And then there's a how. Now, Ehud had studied his Eglon. And I think he had a shrewd suspicion that Eglon would be intrigued and flattered to receive the news that it, there was a secret message. He was obviously a man who liked being the object of attention. Uh, the secret message worked like a charm. So verse 19, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, everybody. And everyone, he sends everybody away. They all left him. I mean, you know, this wasn't something Ehud organized. It was something Eglon organized. Um, everybody left. And so Ehud finds himself approaching Eglon alone in the upper room of his summer palace. And Ehud uh, has another comment, verse 20. I have a message from God for you. Oh, no, no, Eglon was already up for the secret message. But the fact that it's from God, you know, that, that, I, that you know, Eglon's a pretty important chap. If God wants to communicate with him, he feels he's really kind of, you know, hit the top billing. And so his response to having a message, you see, just think about it from Ehud's point of view. He did have a message from God for Eglon. It was a message of judgment, which was not what Eglon had in mind. And Eglon rises from his seat and he staggers, because he's a very large man, towards Ehud. And Ehud bows down. Now, presumably Eglon thought this was a sign of respect. Uh, what Ehud, uh, what um, Ehud's actually doing is reaching down to reach with his left hand to his sword. Uh, and, you know, you can't miss a target of the size of Eglon at such proximity. And verses 21 to 22 present us with something which is a feature of the book of Judges, which is the relish with which the death of the leaders of God's enemies are recounted. You see, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, etc. He didn't pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Um, 
evil often has a human face. Evil ultimately is the work of the evil one. But the evil one recruits us all, if he can, in his army. And there are particular agents of evil. And sometimes particular agents of evil come under particular sentence of judgment from God. Now, it's not our part to kill the enemies of the gospel. Quite the contrary, we're to pray for them. But there is a God in heaven, and he does judge evil men. You've ever reflected on the edge, end of Adolf Hitler? I think you will know that that terrible end was also, I think, a judgment of God. And uh, if we were living in the days of Nero, burning Christians alive in his gardens, or the days of Queen Mary in England, burning believers at the stake in their hundreds, or the days of Adolf Hitler, or the, under the tyranny of Stalin, or today were believers in a prison camp in North Korea, you would rejoice there is a God who's sovereign even over evil men, and he deals with evil. Sometimes he diffuses evil. He takes the Saul of Tarsus and makes him into Paul, and sometimes he destroys evil men, as he did here. And ultimately, that's, that's God's program. Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this was not Ehud's judgment. This was God's judgment on Eglon. Ehud leaves the sword in place. That's handy. You wouldn't want to walk out with a sword in your hand, really. And the crucial blow is delivered not by an Israelite army, but by one man. One savior unexpectedly strikes the enemy ruler and kills him. And the greatest example of that principle is Calvary, where one hero stands forth. And the event is every bit as bloody and gory, in fact, more bloody and gory than the death of Eglon, in which we rejoice because God trampled the serpent's head, or rather, in Christ, God trampled the serpent's head. So, what, when, how, and then? Now, the deed is done, but the Moabites are still ruling Israel. So the job isn't finished. The issue is not settled. Now, what happens next? Ehud cannot have planned. He didn't have control over the sequence of events. But when we read this, we see that somebody did have control, namely God himself. You notice, firstly, the keys. Uh, there's a key statement, verse 26. Do you see that? While they waited, Ehud got away. How did that happen? Well, look at the keys. Uh, do you see verse 23? Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. How did he lock them? Well, there was a key. He could see the key. He picked up the key and locked it. And, I don't know, maybe put it in his pocket and walked off with it. But after he'd gone, verse 24, the servants came. And what did they find? They found the doors of the upper room locked. Well, what did they think? Well, they thought Eglon doesn't want us to go in, does he? So what did they do? They stood and waited outside. 
And how much more difficult that would have been to achieve if there hadn't been the keys? You see, it wasn't that they didn't have the keys. Verse 24 says that they found the, the place locked. Verse 25, they took a key and unlocked the doors. They had a key, they just didn't use it because the door was already locked and Eglon was in there and he obviously didn't intend them to come in. You get the scene? And it's all because of the key that God had made available to Ehud. And while they waited, verse 26, Ehud got away. God is in control. And there's something else as well at the end of verse 22. Well, my translation, well, the ESV says, and the dung came out. Okay, my translation, which is an earlier version of the NIV, uh, talks about um, the blade coming out of his back. But the Hebrew is almost certainly, and the ESV is probably right, the, the newest NIV I see says, in his bowels discharged. You get the picture, okay? Um, now, isn't that really distasteful? Well, perhaps, but uh, it's actually probably quite important in this scene. You see, they're standing outside, and they're waiting to the point of embarrassment. And Tim Keller, in his commentary on this, suggests that, of course, they're smelling. He's in the, on the loo. Okay, so they're not going to burst in. And not only is the door locked, they can, sm you know, it isn't the point to come in. Now, those details, you see, that, that's how Ehud escaped. Ehud goes down, he walks through the palace, he comes to the gates, the guards say, oh, hi, Ehud, goodbye, off he goes. They, there's no suspicion, because they know him, he's doing, you know, and anyway, his right hand doesn't work, does it? And the Lord touched the details. God is the God of detail. You know he knows the hairs on our head. That's ridiculous detail. God knows details beyond anybody's knowledge of detail. He is sovereign. And, and do you know, you need to know that. You need to know that particularly when it's not obvious. Uh, and God doesn't always make it obvious. But there are times when he displays that sort of control over detail that leaves you amazed. Um, I remember years ago, I had an old Renault. It was a very old Renault. And it had this little trick whereby you could leave the keys in the car and lock the door and stand outside and see you've left the keys there. And you know the car laughed at you. You'd stand there unable to get back in because it was locked. However, it was such an old car that if you pulled on the window outside, you could create a space. And if you had a wire coat hanger and bent it in an appropriate fashion, you could, that's how I got into my car on a number of occasions when I foolishly got out of it and closed the door, locking it, and left the keys inside. On one occasion, I was, uh, I was uh, a minister working in, in Bournemouth, and I was dashing around and loads of things to do. I went to visit somebody. I dashed back to the car to get in the car to go somewhere. No keys. And I looked in the car, and there were the keys in the ignition in the car, laughing at me while I was outside, and it was locked. So I was able to force down the window, but you know, I didn't have a wire coat, a wire coat hanger, and I was desperate, I was in a real hurry, this was a disaster. So I stood there and I prayed, and I said, Lord, please would you give me a wire coat hanger, okay? And I opened, I closed my eyes, I opened my eyes, there was a dustbin right by the car. I went over the dustbin, opened the lid, and there was nothing in the dustbin except for a wire coat hanger. 
And I stood there for about two minutes, looking at this wire coat hanger, thinking, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And then I thanked God, and I took the wire coat hanger, and I got back into my car, and I went off on the journey. And that doesn't happen to me very often, but I've never forgotten the God who provides a wire coat hanger when you need it most. And you see, the point of it is that I don't normally need wire coat hangers, but I very often need to know that God's in control. Don't you? So, God is in control, and he uses people. He acts through human weakness. He acts through human initiatives. And finally, he acts through his people together. You see, victory was required more than Eglon dead. It required, firstly, a leader. Um, God believes in leadership. God uh, uses leaders. I hope you pray for your leaders. I hope you support your leaders. I hope you encourage your leaders. Maybe some of you are already leaders or will be leaders. It's one of the features of the book of Judges is how much the welfare of God's people is bound up with leaders. Ehud may only have one hand that works, but he is a leader and he is key to Israel here. You see, verse 27, he escapes. When he arrived, he, he passed by the idols, escaped to this place called Sierra, which seems to be in the hill country of Ephraim. He gets a trumpet and he blows it. I don't know how many people could hear the trumpet, but it was a recognized way of calling men out to battle. And the news spread and the Israelites went down. Now, will you notice how it's expressed in my translation anyway? Verse 27, the Israelites went down. They didn't just go down. They went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Verse 28, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down. They didn't just go down. They followed him. They followed him. They followed him. They went after him. They went after him. They went after him. They were led. They were led. And the leadership that Ehud provided was both practical. It was an example. He could say, follow me. And he went down and they didn't have to guess where to go because they could see him do it. That's part of leadership. It's the shadow of the leader. The leader doesn't just say pray, he prays. The leader doesn't just say do this, he does it. You do it like him, you follow him. But he doesn't just act. You see, he, it's not just a matter of action, it's also a matter of faith. You see what he said to them? Verse 28, the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. He is the man of action, but he's also the man of faith. And he's the man of faith, but he's also a man of action. And I hope that you are men and women of faith and action, of action and faith. And that's what makes a leader. Pray for your leaders that there will be men of action and faith. But although it required a leader, it required a response, verse 28, so they followed him down. And that response of willing people is, of course, what makes leadership count. And they went down with him. A one-handed man wasn't a great soldier all by himself. But with them all, together with him, it made a very formidable army. They captured the fords on the route back to Moab, and we read that 10,000 Moabites were killed. Now, just look in verse 29. In my version, it says all vigorous and strong. Uh, and there's a little joke there. I say it's a joke. It, it, it's it, in the Hebrew. 
the word in my version translated vigorous in the ESV is strong is actually the word fat. You see, they're fat men like their fat king, which is to say, that like their king, they've grown fat on the fruits of conquest. And these people who seem to have prospered are now all of them being destroyed. And Israel is delivered by a one-handed man with his company of Israelites who act together. People acting together can do what none of them can do by themselves. Uh, that's why the church needs not only leaders, but it needs not only good leaders, it needs good followers. You need to be good followers. You're at a stage of your life, many of you, I suspect, where you are in a great position to be good followers who run after those who do lead and say, I'm with you, I'm with you in the action, and I'm with you in the faith. And not one man escaped because it wasn't just Ehud doing the job, but all the Israelites. And that day, we look at last phrase, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. 80 years. If you read Judges, you'll find that in the first half of Judges, there are three or four references to periods of peace or rest. The land had rest. This period that followed Ehud's victory is easily the law. In fact, it's twice as long as any other judge brought in. He brought in 80 years of peace. So it's a very sh relatively short account of a, a despised man, the bringer of tribute. He said, right hand doesn't work. But he brought about a deliverance twice as long as any other judge in the whole book. But of course, after 80 years, it was over. Verse chapter 4, verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil. Incidentally, that rather suggests to me, if the land had peace for 80 years, that Ehud was a pretty young chap. He's probably your age, rather than my age. He was a young guy, but all his time, the land had peace. And it was 80 years, it says, but it was finite. There was a time, there was a day when Ehud died. There was a day when Israel went back. And you know what we need? We need a deliverer who brings a victory that lasts. Not just 80 years, but permanently. And we have one. That's Jesus. He is the victor. And his kingdom will never end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you can take despised and weak people and use them in remarkable ways. We thank you that you're a God who's not just kind of up there, but a God who responds, a God who's engaged, both in judgment and in salvation. And Lord, we want to live lives that are in your hands. We want to be those who are asking, what can we do? When can we do it? How can we do it? Who want to be, we want to be men and women of faith and action. And Lord, we want to see your salvation come. We want to see the Lord Jesus on the throne forever. We want to see his kingdom come, his glory established eternally. 
And Lord, we pray while we're in this world, we ask that you would help us to live in the light of the truths we've been thinking of this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.